0: 1 John chapter 2, and uh, wow, what, a, what an amazing passage of scripture we have this morning. Let's take a look, just beginning, uh, I'm going to start and read through our text this morning, and then we'll go back and just take a look at it piece by piece. John writes saying, 1 uh, John chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who abides, or excuse me, he who says he abides in him, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. One of the precious things through this letter of 1 John, as we take a look at it, is there are many places in it where John tells you exactly why he's writing to you. He says, I've written this to you that you might, or so that you might. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, we find one of those statements. He says, my little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. Now, I think it's interesting in why he puts this in, because if we consider what he's written to us before, uh, we've already seen in chapter 1, it makes a lot of sense. Take a look at what he says in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So John's trying to get us to all recognize that we're all sinners. You have sin, I have sin, we all have sin. We're all sinners. Just as Paul said in Romans chapter 3, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's just a statement of fact. We're all sinners. And then he goes on to say in verse 9 of 1 John chapter 1, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, put those two thoughts together, that we're all sinners, that we all fall short of God's standard. We all miss His mark. That's one truth. And the other truth is that, well, we can all be forgiven of our sins. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just. He'll absolutely forgive us. Now, you can see how if somebody really took both of those truths to heart, it might make them not care that much about sin. Well, why should I be so careful about sin? We all sin, right? Everybody's doing it. Everybody's guilty. What's the big deal? It just makes me another member of the human race if I sin. Then on the other hand, somebody might take the truth of 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 9, and say, well, look, God's in the forgiving business, right? Uh, he forgives. I sin. It's a good arrangement. I mean, that's his business is to forgive. It's my business to sin. We all work together. I give him a job to do and, and uh, all that. You could see how what John has said could almost make somebody take it, in a wrong way, of course, make somebody cavalier about sin. Well, who really cares? So he wants to make it clear in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my little children, these things I write you that you may not sin. Saying, I don't want anything that I've said before to make you think that, well, sin is a light matter. It's trivial before God. I think it's wonderful that God has made it to where it's not inevitable or excuse me, it's not a necessary that the Christian sin. All the resources for victory over sin are available to the Christian in Jesus Christ. But the weakness comes in our flesh, doesn't it? And until this sinful flesh is redeemed one day by being glorified with the Lord, we'll all be liable to sin. But it doesn't mean we take a defeatist attitude towards it. And so we're on track with John. We say, okay, you've written this to us that we may not sin. But then look at what he says at the end of verse 1. It's so precious. He says, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You know, in our culture, it's pretty common today for people to tell lawyer jokes, you know. And I could go through and say a few, but you get the idea. You know, everybody's, you know, uh, making fun of lawyers and poking fun at them uh, every day in our culture. Well, I want you to know that perhaps some of it's deserved, but I want you to know that Jesus Christ is a lawyer. Because in 1 John 2, verse 1, it tells us that he is our advocate. And the word there in the original language that John was writing in had the idea of a lawyer, of a defense lawyer on our side. You see, God's desire is that we may not sin, but when we do sin, we have a lawyer, a defense lawyer in heaven there representing us. Now, in our modern legal system, it really seems that uh, whether or not you did the crime is so important, whether whether or not you get off or, or declared not guilty. The most important thing isn't whether or not you committed the crime. The most important thing is if you can hire a good lawyer. You get a good lawyer, well, then you'll you'll be uh, have your case dismissed or be found not guilty. Well, I'm here to tell you, we've got the best lawyer on our side, Jesus Christ. We have an advocate, it says. And this advocate, this lawyer, this defender is Jesus Christ. I want you to notice what it says there. And this is a point that many people seem to miss. It says that, my little children, if any w- these things I write to you, that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate. In other words, this advocate is available for you right now. Jesus isn't just available to forgive the sins that you committed, uh, perhaps in your youth or before you came into a relationship with him, but he's here to forgive your sins right now. Can I just remind you that God isn't shocked by human behavior? He's seen it all in advance. You know, sometimes we feel like that, don't we? God didn't forgive you at one time, just later on to say, oh my heavens, look what they did. If I would have known that they would have gone off and done that, I would have never forgiven them to begin with. No, God knows. And when Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin, he paid for it all, past, present, and future. His forgiveness is available to us right now. And so it's as if we stand in a heavenly court, uh, accused before our righteous judge, God the Father, and, and our advocate, our lawyer, stands up to plead the case on our behalf. He answers the charges. Really, you know the judge says, "Well, what say? How do you declare yourself?" And Jesus stands up and we get ready for our lawyer to make this fancy statement on our behalf, and he goes up to the judge, and Jesus says, in our behalf, "Well, your honor, he's completely guilty." In fact, he's even done worse than what he's been accused of before this court right now. And my client just makes a humble and complete confession before the court right now. Well, that's not going to work in a human court, is it? That's not what you want your defense lawyer to do. But in a heavenly court, that's the only way you can find mercy. So the gavel slams down and the judge answers and he he says, uh, what shall his sentence be? He asks our advocate, what do you propose for his sentence? And the advocate answers, well, judge, his sentence should be death. My client deserves the full wrath of this court's justice. And we're shaking in our boots. You know, we've declared ourselves guilty. Our own lawyer is standing before us saying that we deserve the full wrath of the court. We're in a bad situation. And then all along there, the accuser of the brethren, which the Bible calls Satan, he's our accuser. He's standing off laughing. He's thinking that he has a great victory over us. He's having great fun. We're guilty. We admit our guilt. We see our punishment. But then our advocate asks to approach the bench, doesn't he? He says, Your Honor, may I have a word with the court? And He goes up to the bench, and he walks up to the judge, and he says, Dad? He <laughs> says, Dad, this one, this one belongs to me. He's guilty. He deserves the punishment, but I paid his price. I took the punishment and the wrath that this court deserves to bring upon this man. Well, instantly the gavel slams on the judge's bench again and it, it, it makes a sound and the judge cries out, guilty is charged, but the penalty is satisfied. And you could just see our accuser, the prosecuting attorney over there, Satan over there, he's going crazy. He's saying, and this can't be. He says, aren't you even going to put this man on probation? The judge answers. He goes, no, the penalty has been completely paid by my son. There's nothing to put him on probation for. But then the judge turns to our advocate and he says, I'm going to release this man into your custody, Jesus. You, You take care of him from there on. And so that's where we stand right now. We're in the custody of our advocate. He stands as a bond, as a surety for us. And we're forgiven. The case is closed. It's case dismissed. It's done. Completely guilty. You see, when you go into a human court in your defense lawyer, the whole trick there is to try to avoid admitting any guilt. You want to deny the crime. You want to find your way around it. You want to use slippery statements and try to get away from saying that you ever did anything. You know, in God's court, the only way to find mercy, the only way to find a quill is to plead guilty, completely guilty, and to let your advocate plead your case for you. My sins, it simply says that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And we might think that our sin makes God be against us, that our sin makes God be our enemy. But God's love is so great that in his love, he went to the ultimate measure to enable us to stand in the face of his holy righteousness. Through Jesus, God is for us, even when we're guilty sinners. And even though a human defense lawyer is there arguing for the innocence of his accused, but our advocate, Jesus Christ, he admits our guilt, and then he enters his plea on our behalf. He says, I've made an atoning sacrifice for this guilty one. And there he stands before us. My friends, look at this also. It says at the end of verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I think that's a remarkable statement, isn't it? Jesus Christ, our righteous advocate. I don't know how many defense lawyers we could say that in the human courts today. But Jesus Christ stands before us performing the function as our advocate, as a completely righteous advocate. And it means that he's fully qualified to serve as our defense lawyer because he's satisfied the righteousness of God. Think about it in these terms. Uh, uh, To practice law in the state of California, you have to pass the bar exam, don't you? You have to be qualified. You or I just can't run in the court and say, well, I want to represent this man. You, You have to have some qualifications. You have to pass a very difficult exam. Well, God has a bar exam in order to practice law in the courts of heaven you have to be righteous. You have to be completely righteous. You have to be sinless. You don't need to come and, and defend your own sin before that court. And only Jesus Christ can be our advocate. And friends, some people want to be their own lawyer before God. They want to come before God and say, well, I'll represent myself. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll be my own lawyer. Don't do it. If you do that, you've got a fool for a client. It, it won't work. You need to throw yourself on the mercy of the court and let Jesus Christ be your advocate. Now in verse 2, John continues on with the same kind of thought. He says, and he himself, referring to Jesus, of course, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. That's an unusual word, isn't it? Propitiation. I don't think you probably said it one time in the previous week. I mean, it's it's just not there. It's just not a word we use. Well, what does it mean? The idea behind that word propitiation, it's a very ancient word and it has behind it the idea of presenting a gift to the gods so that you could turn away the displeasure of the gods. In other words, Uh, let's say some cruel calamity has come upon some ancient city and they believe that they must make a sacrifice to their pagan gods. And so they sacrifice some animal and lay the blood. They hope that it will please the pagan gods and that they'll have mercy on them. The ancient world would use this word propitiation to mean that. And so the idea of this is to turn away the wrath of God towards us by making a sacrifice. Now in the ancient world, their idea of this was essentially bribing the gods. You know how we would bribe a a public official or something like that to try to grease the wheels for something you'd want to get through? That's how they thought about it in the pagan world. You're not making a noble sacrifice to the gods. You're bribing them. You're putting a little money in their pocket. and Well, then they'll be nice to you. But in the Christian idea of propitiation, God himself presents himself in Jesus Christ as the one which will turn away the righteous wrath. In other words, you don't bring a sacrifice to make God happy with you. Jesus Christ has offered himself. And all you do is put your trust in the sacrifice that he's doing. My friend, there's nothing you can do to bribe God. You can't bribe this judge. You can't say, well, if I do a hundred good things, then God will be happy with me. There's nothing you can do before this court. No, I don't know. I mean, I've heard stories of people being able to bribe a traffic officer when they turn, uh, you know, catch them for speeding or whatever. You know, you hand the officer your registration and there's a hundred dollar bill paperclip to the underside of it. And I've heard of such things. I I've never even had a desire to do such a thing. But it won't work in this court. You can't bribe God. But some people hope to. They hope to bribe God through their good works. Well, God, look at all the good things I do. I go to church every Sunday. I give to your work. I'm a faithful person. I'm a good husband. I'm a good father. I'm a good whatever. And they say, well, surely that's going to make God forget about my sin. It won't work, my friends. Next time you get pulled over by the traffic officer, roll down the window and say, officer, look, I know I was speeding. But you know, every time for the last month, I've driven down this road and I've done the speed limit. Doesn't that count for something? He'll say, no. You are speeding this time, and that's what I'm catching you for. And that's what you're going to get the ticket for, and that's what you're going to pay the fine for. What's the same way in God's court? You can't do a hundred good things and outweigh one bad thing. No, you need to throw yourself on the mercy of the court and go before God's bench with your advocate, Jesus Christ. Now, he goes on to say here in verse 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. In other words, the the sacrifice that Jesus made, he made a sacrifice that was suitable, that was available, that was capable of saving the entire world. You know, the real problem with the world today and people being in separation from God, it's not a sin problem. Do you understand? Because Jesus Christ has made propitiation, capable of saving all the world, because he's done that, there's not a sin problem between God and man. The sin problem's been taken care of. The problem is that people won't come and take advantage of the advocate that Jesus Christ has made himself. The sin doesn't have to be a problem. He's taken care of that. But if you insist on defending yourself, now that's a problem. If you insist in thinking you can try to get away from this court and just do your own thing and you won't have to answer to it, that's a problem. But you see, the sin in and of itself isn't a problem because that's been dealt with. Now we can just come and come by the way of our advocate. Now, he sort of turns the focus in verse 3 and continues on with a different thought. He says, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. You see, the evidence of someone knowing God and fellowshipping with him is that they keep his commandments. It's a simple, loving obedience that's a natural result of their relationship with God. See, some wonder about the connection between knowing that we have an advocate in heaven and living a righteous life. Say, well, listen, i got this great advocate. Anything I do, he'll just get me off on, on the court. I've got a friend with the court. I don't need to be concerned about how I live. Because everything I do, he'll just forgive me for. You see, won't knowing this love and this grace of God make us take advantage of him and be less concerned about sin than ever? No, it doesn't. Because when we know the kindness of God, when we know the love of God extended towards us, we want to obey him all the more. You know, when you know how much somebody loves you, when you know how much they care for you, it changes you. It does something in your heart. And so John simply tells us that we can know that we know him by keeping his commandments. Friends, there's a lot of people out there claiming that they know God in some way or another. And there's many different tests. John's going to give us basically three different tests by which someone can know that they really know God. Uh, One test that he's going to deal with in another text that we'll get uh, to later on is the doctrinal test. He'll say, if we really know God, then we're going to believe certain truths about him. Uh, Another way that we can know him is the test of love. He's going to say, if we really know God, it's going to show in our relationships. But there's a test that John talks about right here, and it's the obedience test. If we really know God, then we are going to obey his commandments. Matter of fact, he goes on, look at verse four. He says it even more strongly. He says, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. It's like, wow, John, I mean, tell us how you really feel about it. You're just laying it on the line, aren't you? You say you know God, but you don't keep his commandments. Well, you're not telling the truth. You see, if someone does not live a life marked by obedience to God, then their claim to really knowing God, it can be challenged. It's not true. And I want you to think just for a moment. When some of you first started to follow after Jesus Christ, Maybe it was a very dramatic thing in your life. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was a gradual thing where someday you just realize, hey, wait a minute, my life has changed. My life is different. Let's say you're talking to somebody about the way you used to live and the way you live now, and maybe it's a family member. Oftentimes they know our lives in a very intimate way. And you tell them about the, the excitement that you have in your life, about what God is doing in your life and your relationship with Jesus Christ. And they turn and they look back at you and they say, you know what, yeah, sure, You've been into a lot of things. You know, first it was transcendental meditation. Then it was yoga. Then it was some multi level marketing thing. Now it's Jesus. You know, and they say, yeah, right. And they say, I'll see it, or excuse me, I'll believe it when I see it. Now that might have hurt you, right? You might have thought, how dare they? How dare they doubt my sincerity? How dare they really doubt what's going on in my life and in my heart? Can I just say, I want to give whoever said that to you a little bit of credit. Because there's a sense in which they were speaking the truth. Listen, if the work of God is real in your life, it's going to show in your life. And people have every right to stand back and maybe fold their arms a little bit and say, well, let's see. You say you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You say God's doing something in your life. You say you want to walk after him. All right, let's see the evidence in your life. It's not an unfair question, my friends. And it might have hurt you at the time. You might have said, well, they doubted me. I I didn't want that doubt. They should have just received me with open arms. My friends, the Bible asks you the same question. The Bible says, let's see the proof of it in the pudding, so to speak. Now it goes on to say, verse 5, notice this. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him, or made complete in him, we could say. Now he says, by this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. In other words, John makes the link between our obedience and our love. He says, if you have the love of God perfected or matured in you, then it's going to result in obedience. You're going to keep his word. Now, my friends, here's the bottom line is that you can't enter into a genuine relationship with God. You can't have a real working friendship with the eternal God of the universe and a love for Him and a relationship with Him and have it not touch your life. So just mark it. Mark it down. When someone becomes a Christian, there's a change in their relationship with sin. A christian no longer loves sin the way that they once did. A christian no longer brags about sin the way that they once did. A christian no longer plans to sin the way that they once did. A christian no longer fondly remembers their sin the way they once did. A christian never fully enjoys their sin the way that they once did, Sometimes this is one of the most shocking things that comes to people once they start following after Jesus Christ. Maybe they're walking with the Lord and their life is being changed just gloriously and they decide perhaps in a moment of discouragement or despair, you know, I'm going to go back to my old ways and maybe I'll just give up on this thing. And they try to immerse themselves in their old life again and they find something very shocking. It's just no fun anymore. You know, the things that they used to do, they just give mindless enjoyment and fun. They just go out and they try those things again and Well, it's just empty now. What good is this? And then it's even more discouraging to them. Well, actually, that's a very good sign, isn't it? It's a sign that your life has really been changed by Jesus Christ. You see, my friends, a Christian is no longer comfortable in habitual sin as he once was. And friends, remember, sin is not eliminated in the believer until he comes to glory. And John has made that plain to us, hasn't he? Each and every one of us have to deal with sin until the day that we die, but there must be a change in a person's relationship to sin when they become a Christian, when they truly follow after Jesus Christ. As Charles Spurgeon said, and I just love to quote this man he said, The Christian no longer loves sin. It is the object of his sternest horror. He no longer regards it as a mere trifle, he no longer plays with it or talks with it with unconcern. Sin is dejected in the Christian's heart, though it is not ejected. Sin may enter the heart and fight for dominion, but it cannot sit upon the throne because we belong to Jesus Christ. And the thought is brought around to a full circle. Did you notice that at the end of verse 6? It says, he who says he abides in him. Do you know what it means to abide in him? It means to say that you live in Jesus, that you have a real relationship with him. You know, when you live in the same house with somebody, you abide with them. You say, well, I abide with my wife. I abide with Jesus. We live together. We have a living relationship with one another. And if you say you have that kind of relationship with Jesus, well, what does it say in verse 6? He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Well, Jesus lived a certain way, didn't he? And if we say that we live with him, then we're going to walk in the same way. You know, a month or so ago, I was uh, in Israel on a trip over there. and One of the things you do when you visit Israel on one of these tours is you always take the The boat ride across the Sea of Galilee. It's always a great time, and they cast out a net, and they never catch any fish or anything, but there's always a lot of jokes when you're sailing across the Sea of Galilee about Jesus walking on the water, right? You know, and the boat will stop halfway, and maybe you'll have a message or a Bible study out there, and it's just beautiful, and somebody always joke, well, I'll just walk the rest of the way in, or something like that. You know, a lot of people think that when it says that we should walk just as Jesus walked, that it means we need to walk on water. My friends, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that Jesus lived his life with a certain heart, with a certain conduct, with a certain love towards other people. And if you're really following after Jesus, you want to live the same way. Do you know what they originally called the followers of Jesus Christ? Not Christians. They called them Nazarenes or followers of the way. Later on, in a city named Antioch, they started calling Christians or followers of Jesus Christians, which means little Jesuses or partisans of the Jesus party. That's kind of what it means, you know, little followers of Jesus. And in this city, when they first started calling them Christians, they meant it as a derogatory term. Well, it's just a, a little Christ, a little Jesus walking around. But when the Christians heard it, they thought, wow, do you think so? I mean, do you really, do you really say that I'm living like Jesus? Yeah, we'll take that. And from that time on, followers of Jesus have been referred to as Christians. Christians. I mean, you can talk about being a Christian on all different kinds of levels. Well, he's one of those none-of-the-above Christians. In other words, you know, the survey comes before him, and it has a little box for Jewish, has a little box for uh, Muslim, and has a little box for uh, Hindu. Well, I'm none of those. I guess I'm Christian. Well, that's not a Christian. There's, there's the family type of Christian who says, well, I'm a Christian. My great-grandfather, my grandfather, my, and my parents, they were all Christians. I guess I'm a Christian. What the word really means is someone who walks as he walked. And so when our lives are truly touched by him, when we abide in him, well, then we walk just as he walked. Again, not in sinless perfection, but a life that's pointing the same direction on the compass dial that Jesus walked with. My friends, I just suggest to you that that has to be the absolutely best way to live. It has to be absolutely the most rewarding way to live, to walk as Jesus walked. And God gives us just that kind of invitation to follow after Him that same way. And it's a test to see if what we say really lines up to what we are. So let's conclude right now with prayer and ask God just to make that real in our lives. I think every one of us wants to be able to walk whatever talk we have. And if you talk about following Jesus, John looks at you plainly and looks at me plainly and says, it's time to walk the walk, not just talk it. Let's pray. Well, that's what we want to do, Lord. We want to walk just as Jesus walked. And we don't mean by that, Lord, to walk on water. What we mean, Lord, is just to follow with his blessed character and his other-centered heart. Lord, help us to know more of the nature of Jesus and to love more of the nature of Jesus. And we know that just those things will work a transforming work in our lives. So we ask, Lord, plainly and simply that you do this work in us by your glory and for your grace. Lord, I just simply ask that you'd speak to the hearts of anybody here this morning who who really understands they haven't been walking that walk. Pray, God, that you just move upon their hearts to uh, have their sins forgiven and to begin anew with you. Thank you, Lord, that you've made provision, that you've given us this defense lawyer in heaven. It just makes us all the more want to walk after your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.